You're listening to a podcast from City Tribe Media. We're an urban tribe who helps people who feel far from God to know Jesus, cultivate freedom, discover purpose, and make a difference. We're also a diverse tribe who welcomes everyone from bikers to bankers, PhDs to GEDs, every age, race, and walk of life. So whether you're a longtime Christ follower or a spiritual investigator, we hope you're encouraged through our content. Enjoy today's teaching. Great to be with you guys today. Anybody doing okay today? Anybody? Yeah. Good to see you guys. And uh, as we begin our time together, I need to do an informal type of survey. And so as you think about between being a thinker or a feeler, could you raise your hands if you lean more in the direction of being a feeler? You're de- deeply passionate about like Got a bunch of feelers in the room? Okay. How many of you are like, consider yourself more of a thinker than a feeler, right? You kind of like to think through things. Okay, good. Well, got a lot of thinkers in the room as well. Now, some of you know that there's kind of a war between the thinkers and feelers sometimes, isn't there? It's like the thinkers think that you feelers are a little on the shallow side. But touche, on the other side of the equation, the feelers sometimes think you thinkers are a little on the boring side. You know what I'm saying? And so no need to war against each other. Just because you're a thinker, you still have feelings. And just because you're a feeler, you still know how to think. We can all get along here and we're all valued here. And the reason I'm bringing that up is because some of our church services are going to lean more in the direction of being you know, desirable to those of you that are mostly feelers. And as you think about this series that we've gone through, you know, a couple of weeks ago, we had a service called When the Miracle Doesn't Happen. And if you were here that week, perhaps you saw the little video that we played at the end of the teaching where it was a video of this little boy, baby Elliot, and it was really emotional. We were all like leaving the theater, crying, all that kind of stuff. So that was a service more inclined to the uh, feelers in the room. But today is going to be one that's going to probably be more targeted, those of you who are thinkers in the room, as we look into and study a group of people in the Christmas story known as the Magi. And most Bible translations are going to call them the wise men in the story. Um, And if ever there was like a Star Wars Jedi Council in the Bible, it's the Magi. And so let's take a look at their God moment in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And if you don't mind, go ahead and stand with me now, if you're here in the theater or online, as we read God's words. Matthew 2, 1 through 12. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men, or magi, from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men or the magi secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. 
And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh, and being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. The very words of God. Let's pray together. God, by your spirit, would you touch us, help us transform our minds and our hearts today? We pray for those that are considering a relationship with you, as well as those of us that have known you for years that we would receive your truth from your word today and be transformed by it. We pray these things in your name, Jesus. Everyone said, amen. Will you guys go ahead and take a seat? And today, I really just want to submit one simple idea to you, and it's this. Christmas is about gifts for the king. It's about gifts for the king. And so when I say Christmas is about, you say the second half of that big idea out loud with me. You ready? Christmas is about Gifts. Yeah, gifts for the king. And today, as we study the Magi who brought these gifts for the king, we're going to ask four questions about the Magi. First off, who are the Magi? Second, why were they looking for Jesus? Third, what did they give him? And then fourth, why does this matter to modern people today? And so let's start with question number one. Who are the Magi. And I want to tell you that I learned a lot about the Magi from a teacher named Alan Nolan. And what he explains is that the Magi were experts in two areas. The two areas include astronomy. Notice I said astronomy like the science, not astrology like the horoscopes. And so they were good at astronomy, looking at the stars, interpreting the stars. And they were also experts at oniromancy, which is interpreting of dreams, see? So it's no wonder the Magi were warned in a dream not to go back to Herod. But one of the things that's interesting to me about the Magi is how they were influenced by the Old Testament Bible character Daniel. Uh, In fact, I want to show you how they came in contact with Daniel way back in 605 BC in something called the Babylonian captivity. So what happened with the Babylonian captivity is that the Babylonian empire would go into a country, they would conquer said country, and they would take the young smart people that had like really high SAT scores, and they would capture those young people, take them to their country, brain drain the old country, brain gain their own country, because they wanted the smartest, most intelligent people in the kingdom of Babylon to get a competitive advantage. And they would take young people like young Daniel when he was probably a teenager. They took him and they started training him in the ways of Babylon. And so uh, Daniel, along with his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, ended up captive in Babylon learning the ways of Babylonian philosophy. And let me show you how they were able to perform with the Babylonian elites in Daniel chapter 1, verse 17. Look at it with me. It says, God gave these four young men an unusual aptitude for understanding every aspect of literature and wisdom. And God gave Daniel the special ability to interpret the meanings of visions and what? Dreams. You see the connection to the Magi there? 
Whenever the king consulted them in any matter requiring wisdom and balanced judgment, he found them 10 times more capable than any of the magicians and enchanters in his entire kingdom. So if you followed out this story, you would see that the king of Babylon, whose name was King Nebuchadnezzar, had a dream. It was more like a nightmare. And in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, he was jolted by it when he woke. Have you ever had a nightmare and you wake up and you're like, whoa, man, that was intense. Well, this was Nebuchadnezzar in his dream. And he asked, he went to the Magi and he asked the group of Magi, hey, what, what does my dream mean? But he said, there's a catch to this. I'm not going to tell you what my dream was. You're going to have to tell me what my dream was because I don't want you just making up some interpretation of my dream, you know? So you tell me what my dream was and then you tell me what it means. Well, the Magi were like, no, but we can't do that. We don't know what your dream was. And he said, well, you're a bunch of charlatans. You're a bunch of fakes because you claim to have all this knowledge of dreams and everything, but you don't even know what my dream is. And so what Nebuchadnezzar says was, since you're a bunch of fakes, I'm going to execute all of you. That's when Daniel steps in. And Daniel's like, hey, everybody, let's just chill. There's no need to execute everyone here. Let me just go talk to the Lord and see what he says. And so Daniel goes and God shows him exactly what Nebuchadnezzar's dream was and what it meant. So he brings it to Nebuchadnezzar, and Nebuchadnezzar was so pleased with Daniel. You know what he did? He promoted Daniel to become head of the Jedi Council, if you will. He made Daniel the CEO of all the Magi. Daniel was a Magi, and he was their leader. And you know what he did? Daniel started teaching the Magi the Hebrew Scriptures. And he started teaching them how to really interpret dreams according to the Scriptures so they weren't just making stuff up, you know? So I think it's interesting that throughout the years, God gave Daniel these very precise dreams and vision of future events. Like, Hundreds of years before certain things would happen, Daniel was given in dreams and visions that information. Can I show you just a few examples of visions and dreams that Daniel had of stuff that would come true in the future? Here's one. He dreamed that the Babylonian Empire would fall to the Medo-Persian Empire, and that's, that exact thing happened. He also had a dream that the Medo-Persian Empire would fall to Greece and that a Greek ruler would invade Medo-Persia, take over, and that same Greek ruler would die in the prime of his life. And that exact thing happened when Alexander the Great took over the Medo-Persian Empire, and he died in the prime of his life at 32 years old. After Alexander the Great died at 32, his four commanders divided up his kingdom. We're going to come back to that in a minute. But look at the, one of the last things that we'll see in Daniel's dreams is that he saw that an even greater empire would become more powerful and take over. And that came to pass when the Roman Empire rose to become the most dominant force in the world at that time. So now, remember... Alexander the Great's four generals divided up his kingdom in four areas. One of them was known as the Parthian Empire, which began in 250 BC. And the reason that the Parthian Empire is significant to our conversation today is because that's where the Magi were in power and influence during the time of Jesus' 
birth. Now, here's the thing that you got to know about the Parthians. They love to fight. Have you ever had that friend? You just can't go out anywhere with that friend because they, they always wants to scrape, always wants to get in a fight. Anybody, anybody, you know, you had that friend in high school. It's like, we can't go anywhere. We can't go to a club or anything. You know, this guy's going to get in a fight. So um, that was the Parthians. They just love to fight. They're all pay-per-viewing MMA fights. I mean, this is, this is the Parthians. And the thing is, is that Rome was the dominant power at the time. And when they would try and conquer the Parthians, they couldn't conquer them. So the moral of the story is, do not jack with the Parthians. They will not be conquered. And here's where that became a sticky situation in Israel is because to the east of Israel was where the Parthian Empire was located. And to the west of Israel was where Rome had complete control. So when those two got into a fight, guess where they would fight? In Israel. And that was very problematic for um, Herod and the people of Israel at that time. Um, now, I want to show you something about our nativity scenes that may be a little bit off because we see the nativity scenes and, and how many wise men or magi do we typically have in our nativity scenes? The three, right? Well, that's actually not in the Bible that there were three magi. There were three gifts. The reality is that there would have been anywhere from 75 to 100 Magi, and they would have come into Jerusalem with a royal military escort of bad to the bone MMA Parthian fighters. Okay, so when they came into town, it was an intimidating situation. It was an entourage. It's not. It's not like three little guys with really pointy goatees, you know, giving some little gifts to a little baby Jesus. It's like an entourage of an army, basically. It's a military thing uh, when they come in. To town. And Herod is stressed about this because these guys come into his kingdom. And those of you that know about Herod know that he's really not so much a king as he is a puppet king for the Roman Empire, and he controls Israel at the time. And he had a pretty good gig. He had a very cushy gig. Herod had tons of wealth, probably the wealthiest man in the world at that time, even wealthier than the Caesar. And he had all kinds of great vacation homes, right? I've actually visited a couple of his places and they're fixer-uppers by now because they're kind of ancient. But um, at that time, he had these palatial places. When he wasn't there, you know, he could Airbnb him and all that kind of stuff. You know, this is, this is, he had a great gig going on. And so if there was a war in his country, his vacation homes get jacked up. And so does uh, all of his kingdom there. And the rank and file Jewish person was upset. They didn't want the Parthians and the Romans to fight because that would destroy their humble homes as well. And so that leads us to our second question. Why were these powerful magi looking for Jesus? Well, here's what you got to understand is that by the time Jesus was born, Daniel was already a legend among the magi. Okay, you know how we talk about the goat, the greatest of all time? Okay, there's no doubt that Daniel was the goat of the Magi. He was the greatest of all time. And we, we argue about who's the goat in the NBA. Is it LeBron or was it Michael Jordan? And I just say that, and you guys already want to argue. Okay, I know, I know. It's, it's, it's kind of a thing. But with, amongst the Magi, there's no debate. It wasn't even close. All these Magi who... Uh, we're, we're seeing Jesus at his birth. These guys have read Daniel's words. They'd seen all the prophetic visions that he had received, and they had seen play out in history all of Daniel's 
predictions come true. But there was one more of Daniel's predictions that they were waiting on that had not yet come true. You want to know what it is? Blows my mind. Check this out. Daniel chapter 9, verse 25. Now listen and understand. Okay, this is where you're going to have to do some thinking. Seven sets of seven plus 62 sets of seven will pass from the time the command is given to rebuild Jerusalem until a ruler, the anointed one, comes. So some of you, when you when I read that, you just like, Pastor Doug, that's numbers. I'm zoning out right now. Well, let me show it to you on a chart, okay? Go back on this chart that's going to magically come up now. There it is. So the time, the time starts as soon as it's declared that the city of Jerusalem is to be rebuilt. That happened, if you go back to the book of Nehemiah, chapter 2, verse 5, Artaxerxes decreed that the city of Jerusalem was going to be rebuilt. And after that time, you see, if you uh, add up the numbers, it's going to be 483 years. Because remember, if you add 7 times 7, it's going to be 49. 62 times 7, it's going to be 434. 49 plus 434 equals 483 years. And if you calculate it out, it was exactly to the day, 483 years from the time Artaxerxes decreed the city of Jerusalem would be rebuilt to the time that Jesus made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. If you want to go into the deep math of that, you can read a little book that I put on this slide, and it's called The Coming Prince by Robert Anderson. If you intend to buy that book and read it, make sure you read it with a cup of coffee or a monster energy drink because it's pretty dense. But he goes into all the detail of how you come to these numbers. He accounts for the fact that the ancients had a 360-day calendar rather than the 365-day calendar. He accounts for the fact that in 8 B.C., they started having a 365-day calendar. He accounts for leap years and that you don't calculate the year zero into the equation. Uh, so it's very precise the way Daniel's predictions came true. And so the Magi, these were guys who were, had been waiting all their lives for the anointed one, the one that Daniel wrote about. And remember, they were experts at dreams and they were experts at the stars and interpreting the stars. So here's what some people would tell you today is that you can go get one of those astronomy programs online or an app, and you can go back in history and see how the constellations of the stars were arranged at the first Christmas. And they say, some people say, that the Christmas star was probably not a star but it looked like a star to the naked eye, but it was actually the planet Jupiter that was in alignment with another planet that shone really bright at that time. And they would say, if you go back in one of these astronomy programs, then you would see the view from Bethlehem for Jesus, where Jesus was born, that Jupiter would have gone through the abdomen of the constellation Virgo, like a baby goes through the birth canal of a woman and would have come out at Christmas time. 
Now, that view was popularized by a documentary film called The Star of Bethlehem, created by a guy named Rick Larson. And it's a fascinating watch. And there's another view. Some people say that the Christmas star was Jupiter and what I just described, but others would criticize that view, like scholar Colin Nicole. He says that the details of the Christmas star theory of Jupiter don't fit the details of Matthew. And you say, well, Pastor Doug, what do you think? Well, I'm actually still thinking through this. When I haven't taken a side yet, I'm still studying this thing out for myself. I don't know whether Christmas star was Jupiter. I don't know whether it was another unique kind of star, but I do know this, that the very intelligent men known as Magi were seeking out baby Jesus because they believed he was not just a king, but the king of kings. And so let's look at our third question, and that is, what did the Magi give to Jesus? Now, one thing you have to understand about these Magi and people in general is that when people have God moments in their life, it oftentimes leads us towards generosity and giving of gifts. And put yourself in the Magi's shoes for just a minute. Think about if you'd been studying ancient documents like Daniel's book, and you've been studying the stars your whole life, and you were anticipating the king of kings coming, and finally, you were about to actually see him. Your whole life had led up to this moment. And let's take a look at their God moment in Matthew chapter 2, verse 11. It says, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary's mother. And look at what they did. They fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And so they finally had seen the king of kings. This was their God moment. And they're like, the trinkets of this earth are nothing compared to your greatness, your grandeur. It's like even the stars align to show us your presence as a child. So what were the gifts? Well, the first gift was gold. And when I say gold, I want you to say king because gold is the gift of kings. Ready? Here we go. Gold. Kings. Good. We know this because later on when John would have a prophetic vision of what Jesus would look like when he comes again the second time, look at what he said and what he saw in Revelation 14, 14. He had a gold crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. So when the Magi saw the baby, they're given gold to say he's the king of kings. But the second gift is frankincense. Frankincense is the gift representing priests. So when I say frankincense, you say priests. And when I say priest, you say frankincense. Ready? Frankincense. Priest. Good. Thank you for coming up. And this comes from the Old Testament temple offerings when they would offer up these grain offerings in Leviticus chapter two, verse one. When you present grain as an offering to the Lord, sprinkle it with frankincense and bring it to Aaron's sons, the priest. It is a special gift of pleasing aroma to the Lord. Have you ever cooked something and didn't really smell that good until you added the spices? Maybe you added some cinnamon and you could smell that cinnamon or you could add some citrus or some cloves or maybe some ginger and it smells really good. 
Maybe for some of us, like you had that brisket rub, you know, and it really smells good. I'm making you hungry just talking about it, right? Well, the Old Testament grain offerings not only didn't smell good, they smelled really bad until the priest added the frankincense. And here's what they're trying to get across here is that any spiritual or religious offering trying to get to God that doesn't include Jesus stinks. The frankincense of our priests is what makes it smell good. And if you know Jesus, if Jesus is your priest, you're smelling good. So if you're a follower of Jesus, turn to someone next to you and tell them, I'm smelling good. So we've seen the gold, the frankincense, and now there's the myrrh. The myrrh is used to prepare bodies for burial. So when I say myrrh, you say burial. Ready? Here we go. Myrrh. Burial. Very good. And so this takes place when Jesus was killed on the cross, died for sin, and a guy named Joseph of Arimathea was preparing his body for burial. We see that in John chapter 19, look at verse 39. It says he brought about 75 pounds of perfumed ointment made from myrrh and aloes. So when the Magi bring these gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, they're saying, they're predicting that this little child, he is going to die for our sins, and he is going to be a fragrant aroma to God Almighty, to purchase us so that he can be our priest and our king. And he's not just any king, but he is the king of kings. So why does all this matter if you aren't, haven't already figured that out? Let me show you two reasons why this matters for modern people today. One is that the Christmas prophecies reveal that we can trust God's word and what it says. You know, the Magi and Daniel understood the significance of ancient prophecies, and there are many predictions and prophecies that were made about Jesus in the Old Testament part of the Scripture hundreds of years before Jesus was ever born, hundreds of years before the New Testament events took place or were recorded or added to the Old Testament Scriptures. The Old Testament Scriptures were fully established long before the New Testament events, and they predicted all these things about Jesus. Can I show you just a few things that were predicted about the birth of Jesus that happened at Christmas time? Um, it was predicted that he would be a part of Abraham and Daniel's family lines, that he would be born of a virgin, born in Bethlehem, that there would be the loss of life for a lot of children at that time. And that happened when Herod killed a bunch of baby boys who were Jewish. It was predicted that Jesus would live in Egypt for a time, which he did. And it was also predicted that he would come from Nazareth, which he did. Do you think all oh, this is just a coincidence? All these predictions made about one guy that happened. And you know, there were actually over 300 prophecies that were made about Jesus' life before he was ever born. But let's just say we take the 48 major prophecies and predictions that were made hundreds of years before Jesus was born about his life. What are the chances of that being a coincidence? What are the chances of that coming to pass in one human being, in one person? Well, there's a mathematician, Peter Stone, that says the chances of that are 1 in 10 to the power of 157. That's a 10 with 157 zeros after it. 
I would say that's not a coincidence. I would say that's money in the bank, that Jesus is who he says he was. He could fulfill prophecies even as an infant whose mama had to change his diapers. That's how good he was, see? So the reason that's important to us today, if the Bible is amazingly accurate on these prophecies that are fulfilled, and look, by the way, I still from time to time, we'll have questions about the Bible. But one thing I know about the scriptures is that it, these prophecies get fulfilled with amazing, precise accuracy. And if we see it's accurate in the fulfillment of these prophecies, then I can read the scriptures and know I can trust it to point me to Jesus and help me have love relationship with God through Jesus. And I can trust it to obey what it says and live my best life possible here on the earth. But here's the second reason that this matters for us today is that the Christmas story challenges us to be givers, see? to be givers like the Magi were. Remember, we've already said that Christmas is about gifts for the king. When these powerful, influential Magi had their God moment, they bowed down on worship and they gave gifts. And that's something that you see all throughout the scriptures. When people have God moments, they give. It's like David, when he was giving a gift to the temple construction, he offered a gift of, in today's currency, it would be $400 million. And then one woman poured out a year's salary in worship to Jesus. And there was another guy who was kind of vertically challenged, you know, that would be Zacchaeus. And he gave away half his possessions and he paid back the people that he had cheated four times what he had cheated him out of. So when people have God moments, it leads them to give. And that's one of the things that I appreciate about you guys as a church. We may be, not be a church filled with rich people, but we're a church filled with generous people. And you guys gave over 120 coats to children this year that are going to need them this winter that couldn't have afforded those coats. And so I applaud you and thank God for you guys. And there was this tribe group a couple of years ago in our church, small group we called tribes, and they decided they were going to sponsor. They had a prompting like a God moment that they were supposed to sponsor our Easter event that year, a couple of years ago. So what they did was they all gave above and beyond, and they raised $18,000 to pay for that event where we had to rent this bigger venue and other space, and we had to rent all this stuff that cost all this money. So they basically pay for the whole thing through giving above and beyond their regular tithes and offerings and all that here in support of our church. And they got the reward of going to the Easter services and seeing people being baptized, lives that were changed there that year. And that's really what it's about. And, you know, one of the members of that group who was not in the other picture. She evidently wasn't there the night they took the picture with the big check, but it was Allie Garcia. Some of you see Allie around here. She basically runs half the church around here. I mean, she's out here running around everywhere, and uh, now she's on our staff. She wasn't at that time, but she felt prompted with the rest of the group to give beyond what she ever had done. And then she was a little bit frustrated, honestly, because she came back to the group, and everybody had all these glory stories and God stories of how they had given huge amounts in, in their own budgets, and God blessed them back. 
And she was like, wait a minute, God, I'm this single mom here trying to make ends meet. And, you know, I gave way beyond what I have. And you bless all these other people back, but didn't bless me back. And really, you should bless me back and not them back because they don't need it as much as I need it, right? But you know what happened next? She was kind of thinking about it, questioning God on that. And we know that God's a giver, not just a taker, right? Well, some time passed, and Allie went to a church service at another church on a Saturday night. But what she didn't know at that service is they had all the single moms stand up, and they gave away cash gifts to all the single moms. And then in addition to that, not too long after that, Allie had another friend from Austin give her an unexpected cash gift. And then two other sets of her friends gave her more cash gifts. And as Allie and I were talking about this on the phone the other day, God had not only blessed her back and paid her back everything she had given to that offering, but much more. See, because God's a giver, not a taker. I can assure you of that. But check this out. Here's what you got to understand. We don't give gifts to God so that he'll bless us back. You don't give gifts to the king like he's some kind of cosmic bending machine. We don't give gifts to the king so he'll bless us back. We give gifts to the king because he already blessed us. You follow me? Anybody about that? Look. So there's a story that helps illustrate that for me. And it's at this miner who came to the United States in the 1800s from England. And he was crossing the country and he was going to California for the gold rush. And he was panning for gold and he was one of the lucky ones that struck it rich. He found a lot of gold. And so he was going to head back to England and he was passing back through the United States and he ended up stopping in New Orleans. And he saw this crowd gathering in front of a stage and he saw an African-American man standing on that stage. And you got to remember, this was back when slavery was still legal in this country. They were auctioning off another human being on the stage. And the guy from England, the miner, was just blown away by this. He's like, why would they do this? I mean, because slavery had long since been outlawed in England. And so the man was auctioned off. And then this beautiful, young, African-American woman stepped up on that stage, and they were going to auction her off. And people started bidding on her. And then these two men who were kind of making crude, you know, innuendos about this auction started bidding on this young woman on the stage. And they bid, 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 and it got high. People were like, wow, they're paying a lot of money for this young woman. And when it looked like one guy was going to outbid the other guy, the auctioneer was about to end the auction. He's like, going once, going twice. And before he could lower the gavel, the miner from England stepped in and made a bid. And he bid double what the other winning bid was going to be. And that guy just like, hey, I'm not paying that for anybody. And everybody in the crowd kind of, were, they were murmuring, you know, they're like, why would anybody pay that amount of money for a slave? So he walks over, the miner walks over to the stage and the young woman steps down from the stage and she spit in his face and she said, I hate you. And you know, can you blame her? took her by the hand and walked her down the street to this little storefront with a glass 
front and he walked in and she had to stay outside and just kind of watch through the glass and she was watching and she saw the miner in there negotiating with the clerk at the desk and they were arguing back and forth and finally the miner pulled out another bag of gold and set it on the counter and the clerk took it and then they both signed some papers. The miner took that paper and he went back outside and he handed it to her and he said, you're free to go. And she said, I hate you. Why do you tease me like that? And he said, no, you don't understand. This is your manumission papers. You're free to go. She said, you bought me just to let me go? And he said, that's why I bought you. I bought you to set you free. And it dawned on her that this was legit, that he was telling the truth. And she was really going to be free. And she just collapsed before the miner on her knees. And she reached around his legs and she held him. She kept saying, you bought me to set me free. You bought me to set me free. I'll serve you for the rest of my life because you bought me to set me free. And look, those of us that know Jesus, we've been enslaved to a lot of things in this world. And he didn't. He didn't buy us to make us slaves. He bought us to set us free. See, right, hon? Look, if you've never begun a relationship with God and you've never known him, man, today's as good a day as any, right? So what do you say we pray? And if you'd like to, you can just talk to God right now. We call that prayer. So let's bow our heads. And as we talk to him, Know that we're talking to not just any king, but the king of kings. And know that even the stars have predicted his coming. And as you come before this great God, you might just say something like this if you want to know him. Look, God, I know I've sinned. And right now, the best I know how I choose to believe that when Jesus Christ died on the cross, he died for my sin to pay for it. He bought me to set me free. Welcome into my life. And I choose now to walk under your lordship, Jesus. Because you love me and I love you back. Because you bought me to set me free. For the rest of us that have known him for many years, some of us and some of us for a short time, we say, Jesus, we want to do nothing but serve you and give to you because you bought us to set us free. We can't thank you enough. And we pray all these things in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. Everyone said, amen. Amen. Well, as we wrap up today, I want to wrap up with a bit of a challenge to you. As we all think about our end of year charitable giving and giving in support of our church, before I go on with this, I want to say to those of you that are not Christians or not regulars here, not a part of City Tribe Church, this isn't for you. And the Bible says God loves a cheerful giver. And I totally understand if you don't want to participate in this. But those of us that are regulars here, I want to challenge you on your year end giving. And here's why. Because our leadership team and trustees 
have sensed the Lord leading us to take a couple of risks in 2023 to better serve our children in Kids City, to better serve our tribes, to invest in those two things. And also, we have some facility repairs that need to be made. How many of you know that the only thing that works in an old house is the owner? Well, that's the case here as well. So because of those three things, the facility improvements, the uh, tribes and children, um, Jeannie and I are praying about how are we going to give above and beyond our regular tithes this year to make up for, uh, you know, and to invest in these three areas that I've just mentioned. Because by faith, we're already committed to doing it as a church, and we're just believing God that he's going to provide for it. And so um, I'm not trying to, like, guilt anybody into that. I'm not trying to, like, you know, put the screws on you or twist your arm or anything like that. Really, the way we give around here is we just say, hey, God, by your spirit, what do you want me to do? I want to be a part of what you asked me to do. And so uh, you guys pray about that, how much you might want to contribute year in to help us take a dent in uh, out of those expenses that I just mentioned. Sound good? Does that make sense? Are you feeling like I'm twisting your arm or anything? Is it cool? We cool? Okay. All right. So you just pray about this and see what God wants to do. Now, if you're new here, here's the way we do offerings and stuff. We don't pass like buckets in front of your plate. I've been, have you ever been to church where they like, they didn't take up enough, so they pass it again? <laughs> kind of crazy, but we don't do that. So anyways, here are the four ways to pull it off here at our church. Um, you can mail your tithes and offerings in to the P.O. box that you can see the address for that on the screen. And then you can also text to tithe, texting the number on the screen. You can go to the giving stations that are located near the exits of the theater, or you can just go to our website on any device, citytribe.church slash tithe, T-I-T-H-E. So before you guys worship through your year-end giving, um, let's go ahead and stand up together and receive a word of benediction over us. And if you're with your crew, put your arm around someone. Uh, if you want, put a hand out in position to receive from the Lord. And I hope that these things I speak would be true of you as you leave from here. Dear brothers and sisters, as you walk from this place, may you walk from here standing on and living out the very words of God that are given in the scriptures, knowing that you can trust these words with your life, with your eternity. Walk from here knowing that you're loved dearly by not just a king, but the greatest king, the king of kings. May Jesus be your priest as you walk from here smelling so good because you got the frankincense of the king of kings all over your life. And may you walk from here knowing that he bought you to set you free. You guys walk from here in freedom and we'll see you next Sunday. Peace. We're glad you were a part of the tribe today. To further connect with us, Check the City Tribe YouTube channel, iTunes, SoundCloud, Instagram, Facebook, or our website, citytribe.church. May you go from this podcast knowing that you are loved.